weeks. We are going to cut right into the action here because we are doing our second part looking at Dario Argento's films and some of the greats of Italian horror for our special October horror series. Yesterday we looked at the Stendhal Syndrome and today Bennett's taking us into the caves to look at the Phantom of the Opera. We're going to get right into it, so we'll resume the episode right where we left off. So before we get into the Phantom of the Opera, I do want to take a few, just a few quick minutes to talk about what makes Arzenshio a great director, because we've kind of hinted on it, but he's made some absolute classics, and I think just because of the time period we're looking at, it's worthwhile to rewind. So this is an exciting matchup for me because, like we've all mentioned, it is kind of where he turns from classic to, you know, a little more dismissible. So I, I, I just want to throw it your way, either of you first, whoever wants to go. What do you feel is Argento's strongest films and maybe, like, in what style do you feel he's at his best? I mean, to me, it's always, like, there's a scene in Inferno uh, that is one of my favorite. Uh, it's a famous scene where uh, the protagonist goes into the watery hole to retrieve a, a key. Yeah, and so, so she climbs in this... <laughs> mysterious hole and she has to she tries to reach for it and then she's got to go inside the hole underwater to find this key and underwater is this whole other room you know the and it's got this kind of beautiful kind of victorian uh decor and and then you know a body floats up and she's kind of stuck against this uh skeleton and everything that uh, ability of is to get so close (laughs) to get so in there and to really create these movies where you're going inside something and pull us inside a space like that and then put something in there where we really want to get out (laughs) and we can't uh he's very very good at that and you know the whole structure of deep uh deep red is that it's about going into you're trying to go into that space and find that secret room where the murder happened and it's you know behind this wall that's been plastered over and you know he's very good in many examples of kind of going deep inside uh and uh and then placing something (laughs) horrifying there and then my other favorite uh sort of murder in uh in argento is uh in opera when uh daria nicolati uh gets shot through the eyeball in the in the keyhole and it and it again it's it's not that i like (laughs) killing people or i hate eyeballs but it's so uber visceral you know, getting inside the gun, showing the bullet coming out, blowing through the back of her head, hitting the phone that the kid in the background uh, is trying to call help with and blowing up the phone at the same point. It's so intensely, beautifully visceral and yet so horrifying. It is, you know, it is high art gore. And... uh I don't know that anyone's better at doing this kind of high art gore that is so such a beauty to watch and is so revolting at the same 
time, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and that tension between those two things is what kind of keeps you, me coming back uh, for more. So what do you think is his best film? Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think Suspiria is uh, pretty great. Uh, That's my pick. I mean, I like Phenomenon, but I like that. I like Opera. Those those three are kind of my my favorites, probably. Um, that's the thing. I think Bennett may have said earlier. They're kind of all uneven, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like none. Of, I wouldn't say even, any of them. Even his like, best movies. Yeah, I would never say spots. any of them couldn't use some trimming or a little rewrite or, you know, he doesn't have a flawless film. You know, I think it's the nature of the way he works where he's sort of putting together these sort of scenes from nightmares and trying to wed them into something coherent. Mm-hmm. It's go- it's difficult to do. Bennett, what about you? I think my favorite of his films, uh, uh, two of the ones you talked about, honestly, um, Opera or Inferno would be the two favorite of mine. And uh, I, what I like about him is that he works, like we've talked about, in this grand, dreamlike, supernatural, otherworldly mode. But at the same time, there are oftentimes little details related to killings that are just achingly real world. Um, the kill for me that sticks out is earlier in opera when her boyfriend gets killed and he's getting like stabbed through the hand. He's getting these really like horrible defensive wounds that you're like, ugh. That's like worse than like seeing his eyeballs pop out to me. It's like seeing him get stabbed through like the palm. Um, and Argento really knows when to do which mode. You know, he knows when to have a coven of witches plotting around this like dance hall. And then he knows when to like, you know, have someone get like cut under the fingernail. Um, he, he can play both of those equally well and in his best films he really knows when to do which I think one thing that's also important to mention which we kind of skipped over in the last one because we were so focused on artwork but he's one of the best music musically inclined oh, yeah, yeah. directors I mean obviously Goblin. Goblin like what would he be without Goblin like, they, they're just incredible and I was fortunate enough to see Claudio Simonetti they did a live score of Deep Red where they played at the Hollywood Theater while the movie was playing. And just hearing that in person, it's just like it took the movie to another level that was just absolutely mind-blowing. But in Stendhal Syndrome, it's important to mention that they hadn't worked together for 25 years, but uh, Ennio Morricone actually did the mm-hmm. score. And he approached Argento this idea where it was going to be a score that could be played in forward or reverse with a repeating bass line that... <laughs> it just follows the same pattern and things like that to me just stand out and i will say opera is not one of my favorites because i was in his heavy metal period and i just think it's so strange because like that last scene where she's running it feels like the sound of music and you just have heavy metal that's why that's why i love that scene i like it yeah it is the that it's it's like the nightmare sound of music i don't know Uh, i just i I like that he's been like we talk about all of his, even his best films being uneven. He's a guy who's like only ever dealt in late style. Like, I feel like from the beginning, you kind of have to be bought on Argento. Like before Argento was a tradable commodity, you already sort of had to be bought in on all the ticks and stuff. It's what I really like about him. Um, he, uh, he really, uh, he, he pulls no punches. Um, it, it can result in some of the movies being too long. I, you know, I've mentioned Cat of Nine Tales, even Stendhal Syndrome being one of those movies where you'd be like, Ugh, might cut 15 minutes from this. But, um, I don't know. It's better than someone not going for it, you know? <laughs> He's not shy. The thing, 
I mean, I like him when he, I mean, he writes his stuff. I mean, he'll sometimes collaborate with someone. He, he uh, collaborated with his wife, Daria, and uh, he has collaborators. But when he does write his own stuff, he's he writes to his strengths, you know, which are these set pieces. And, uh, and so they are very much, I mean, they're auteur films, and they're very much his vision. And, you know, I respect that. I, I think of him kind of like De Palma, where uh, uh, De Palma has, you know, done stuff, you know, directed films by Mamet and David Kep and But, you know, the ones he does that, are, that he writes are so tailored to his particular obsessions. And even though they might be a little clunkier, the character work might be bad, the dialogue might not be great, they're they're kind of more him and I sort of and that's the way I feel about Argento he doesn't have that uh I don't think he's he hasn't sort of collaborated with uh kind of a-list screenwriters in the same way uh but uh, all of his work is so tailored to what he does um and uh I really respect that and uh uh you know I know what I know I'm gonna get something uh, I'm, I know I'm going to get something unique when I see one of his films. So we're at the pivot point. I think the pivot point in his <laughs> career, he goes from being pretty untouchable to hit. So between Stendhal syndrome and fan of the opera, an important thing in his life happened where he found out that his accountant was spending twice as much money as they were bringing in. And he went bankrupt. He lost his house and, had trouble making movies for a bit and so he wanted to return to the first thing that scared him which was the phantom of the opera this movie i forget which version it was but it opened his world to horror and he said he realized he had a place in the world (laughs) but i really like this quote from his book because he's talking about as a kid and where horror fit into his life and you know his He came from a very wealthy family. They had a large house. And he says, for me, nightmares would begin at bedtime. I wasn't afraid of the dark like like most children. No, I was afraid of the bedroom corridor. It was a perfect form of terror, pure and unconditional. And Jason Michaelich was going to join us today, but he had a family event come up and he couldn't make it. So I just wanted to return to something he said in his essay about the Three Mothers trilogy, because he talks about how Argento at his best... The horror is in the walls. Like he just says, everything in the frame could kill you. Like there's just something in every, when it's scary, like everything in the frame is out to get you. And that is where the key to his horrors come in. This is a movie that that was shot in actual caves. It's shot in, I think it was a Budapest theater. There are so many opportunities to make the walls and just the environment absolutely terrifying. I don't think it works very well. I really don't think this film is scary, but Bennett, I'm throwing this your way because you're air booing me right now. Hey, hey, you don't have to do that. (laughs) See, I think everything underground in this movie, it works like gangbusters. I I, I think all of the cave stuff is incredible. I did not know that it was filmed in actual caves, but I think it comes across. I think the slightest gestures really work to disorient you incredibly when you're down in the caves in this movie. Um, When... Two characters go down to like look for the phantom's hidden gold at one point, and there's a shot, a very simple shot of just the camera looking up in the air and sort of spinning around. It's almost a hacky effect, 
but it just beautifully communicates being like turned around disoriented in some sort of like unfamiliar locale i think the claustrophobia really comes across yeah i don't know this movie for me in a good and a bad way it feels like an episode of a tv show where they're like putting on a play like it feels like the hey arnold episode where they do romeo and juliet you know (laughs) (laughs) i like it makes me wish argento did more literary adaptations or that like every filmmaker had to do something like this and I, I didn't make this comparison in my head before, but it is almost like his last of the Mohicans in the sense that it's him like readapting some silent film that meant a lot to him. Michael Mann uh, talked in making that film about some, some uh, like 1926, I think adaptation of last of the Mohicans that he loved as a kid. And like this, this there's such a, uh, there's such a passion in this film. I, I, I just made it sound like sort of like an exercise, like people playing dress up, but at the same time, like, He's making a meal of this medium budget here. I talk all the time about eating at the trough. He's eating at the trough here. (laughs) Anyone who loves a movie, I have respect for. (laughs) Like, I love passion. And, uh, you know, so uh, uh, hats off to you for loving this, uh, (laughs) this, this child. I found it, you know, I find it a little, a little bumpier, this movie. But, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, you know, the corridor, which is an image he talks a lot about in, in interviews because it's sort of a kind of childhood memory that sort of has the most direct relationship to his work. He does do a great job with that cave space. I mean, the, if anything, the I didn't I also didn't know it was, uh, you know, shot in a real cave. And I wonder if there were some limitations. I wonder if they had built something, if it would have had more kind of uh, layers and dimensions. They do a lot in that movie with that one sort of narrow corridor in the cave where you've got things sticking out. At the, yeah. They do like a lot of the movie in this one sort of section. And I, I kind of wonder like how big was this cave they were shooting in? Did they have other options? Like could they get it at a different angle, you know? Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. they do... You know, that is a kind of terrifying, that is kind of Ar- an Argento, uh, Argento-ian corridor uh, where they get the claustrophobia of that, uh, that cave to work uh, for the scene. I mean, I, I think the basic, you know, kills and scares, I, I think they all work in this movie. To me, the problem is it's a very romantic story uh phantom and if you've noticed there's no romance in his work uh there may be people having sex or people in love but there's no felt romance in his work and i don't really feel it here and it phantom of the opera as a piece of work is a romance and i could not connect with that section of it but i did love I mean, I love that in place of that, like he's, and I don't want to jump ahead, but like he's got a scene where Julian Sands like is undoing his shirt and likes kind of like doing erotic things with rats, you know? Yeah. Uh, I love that his substitute for, like there's more heat between the rat and Julian Sands than there is between, you know, the main character and uh, uh, Julian Sands. But I sense you're going to disagree. <laughs> I will answer the question about romance in one second. I do think Down in the Cave, one of the things that's kind of a bummer about the movie is that it occasionally feels sort of rudimentary. He's not moving the camera like we know he can in this movie. Um, It's especially a bummer in comparison to opera, which is sort of riffing on Phantom of the Opera, as I think almost like anything set in an opera kind of naturally has to. 
Um, like that movie, like especially the opening scenes of both movies when you compa- when you compare the two of them, like it's a bummer to see how uh, just stay it this is in comparison. Yes, but I think the almost like creakiness of like what he's able to do down in the caves really works in his favor. Um, Jul- uh, Julian Sands like chasing. Uh, I can't remember what her relation to the action is the woman who goes down like looking for the gold with her boyfriend but like when he's chasing her is it really is like nosferatu chasing somebody it really feels like that um and i think the the sort of like creakiness works in its favor i like too that when her like foot is stuck the score just stops dead and then starts completely up at full volume right where it left off when she starts running again which i don't know is 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 sort of like corny hokey effect that i think is is befitting the sort of like ec comics like goosebumps nature of this whole thing but on the subject of the romance i think the one time when the romance really comes across is the rooftop scene which seems like it's a sticking point should we come back <laughs> i tweeted to that? out <laughs> yeah uh, should we can, should can we come I, back we'll, to that we'll get to that in a minute yeah. let me just set this up first so there are many adaptations of phantom of the opera this one he does some different things bennett do you kind of want to just walk us through some of the changes he makes and especially about the phantom and his whole deal in this yeah, So the major change he makes uh basically phantom of the opera story is right there's uh a new opera house being opened uh there's the soprano who's like uh, there's like that you know the head diva and then there's uh her her understudy there's a guy who like lives secretly in uh the theater who starts like killing people because he wants the the understudy to become the lead and there they fall in love that's that's sort of basically the story um the major changes he makes in this one is that the phantom is not scarred uh, he doesn't wear the famous mask he's a uh, beautiful uh charisma vacuum julian <laughs> sands uh in this movie um an actor i was saying in the break who uh, has never been good in anything. He's actually in a Ken Russell film. Speaking of Ken Russell, he's in Ken Russell's Gothic. He plays Percy uh, Bissy Shelley. Um, kind of a similar performance to this, where he just sort of does a lot of monologuing. Um, if you've seen the film Benediction from this year, folks, he's actually quite good in that in like two scenes because uh, the stiff upper lip thing sort of works in his favor. Um, and the other major uh, change here is that the Phantom was raised by rats and <laughs> has some a sexual identity sort of uh that's somewhat rat-like you know you describe the rats <laughs> writhing all over him um you got to give one thing about julian sands the first thing i noticed when he popped up on screen is i'd never noticed that he is slightly rat-like in appearance his face he's his, got a big nose yeah, big nose, sort of, yeah. yeah. there's something yeah. true or rat-like <laughs> in his face uh anyway go on <laughs> No, and it's, yeah, it's otherwise sort of a, a straightforward take on the material. He adds some some sort of comic relief characters who are sort of hunting for rats. Uh, one really underdeveloped strand is that the Phantom seems to have a telepathic control yes. over people. He makes the one guy stick his hand in the mousetrap, and that's all we see of that, I think. Otherwise, we, we sort of maybe hear him, like, uh, talking to people mm-hmm. telepathically. Um, one thing I think the movie does really well, and it's, you know, it, it makes sense to hear that it was sort of informed by, uh, childhood fears. Um, everyone in the movie is in this sort of childlike sense of terror about the idea of the Phantom. And again, I, I that to me perfectly, uh, it feeds into this sort of like playing dress up quality of the movie. Um, he's, uh, it, it's like the biggest budget he would ever work on again, but it's like a notable step down from even like the Stendhal syndrome, which, you know, is obviously like a cheaper looking movie than, you know, Suspiria, the, the, the real golden age stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering about the, I, I didn't, I sort of didn't know about that he had gone bankrupt. And, I didn't know. Uh, yeah. And, uh, 
I do wonder, it does look cheaper. I actually looked up the, the cinematographer is a real famous guy. Uh, to me, it's also, I, I to my eye and my taste, it's overlit. Like, it's quite bright. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know, it's not like, I mean, they've got like a, I mean, this guy was like, I mean, he's DP major things. I think he was camera op on Barry Lyndon. I mean, this is like a heavy hitter that's uh, that's working with him. And um, but there is a uh, reduced and small quality uh, to the film, especially when you compare it to uh, oh, I mean, definitely Suspiria or any of those, but um, uh, even Stendhal Syndrome. But don't all our day-to-day concerns seem small in the face of something like love? Yes, they do. Love they of do. art, the love of cinema. Yes, they do. <laughs> they do. And it and it's power to transform a measly budget, but budget into something uh, profound. Yes. I think my issue with this film is I found it hard to get absorbed into its world because it it just kind of bounces you around at the beginning and it doesn't quite settle for a bit. So I. I want to throw this quote from his book at you. He says this about creating film worlds. During the course of my career, I've learned that if you manage to create a coherent universe in all its madness, you've already obtained the suspension of disbelief that's necessary to say whatever you want. The important thing is to make a solid impression on the viewer right from the start. I'm not going to rip you off. Trust me, and you'll see. You won't be sorry. So I think the question here is, do you think this... film exists in a believable world no but i don't mind i don't um i don't miss the lack of exposition i guess in this movie and again i think part of it is me cutting him a little bit of slack because he's adapting well-known source material do you know what i mean it's sort of taken as read uh some of the premise and stuff and we're kind of accepting it as just sort of dario argento playing around in a world that sort of already exists uh in the popular imagination that said, I, I think I also cut him a lot of slack in general. I cut a lot of horror filmmakers slack um, in, in general. Like, if we're accepting that there is a dreamlike quality to the film, then like um, building out a universe that is considered to be coherent, we're using this sort of dreamlike definition of coherent. So really, like, it just has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. Do you know what I mean? Like, all the walls don't necessarily have to connect in a way that totally makes sense. It could be kind of uh, cobbled together from bits of different like, buildings or different stories or whatever. I mean, I, I, the part I have trouble with, it's not so much any of the lot, most of the lot, it's a simple story and all that stuff tracks fine. Uh, and it, it's more the, and I don't even have a problem with this. I, my favorite part is the rat subplot, that there's Definitely. this rat catcher that's given this <laughs> new role and makes like a rat catching vacuum machine uh, that ends terribly. Uh, that's my favorite part uh, of the movie. The um, the moment that Christine first meets the Phantom and he and he seduces her and like strokes her and like practically puts his thumb in her mouth. Like I did not, I couldn't buy that. I couldn't. I couldn't go along with that. This is something she would do, or she, you know, and so. The whole romance, I I couldn't feel. Even though this story is something that scared him as a kid, and uh, that he that it really it has a lot of links to his work. I mean, it is about falling for a dark character and going underneath the art world. And I mean, that's where he's lived in 
doing low art, doing high low art, you know, going underneath the opera and hanging out with the Phantom. <laughs> like, I, it all makes sense that he would want to do this. I, I wonder if he ever really thought about the romantic, like doing romance. Like, I don't think that's in his skill set. And you want directors to push uh, the boundaries. And I, I think I, I really love Bennett. And I want to hear you talk about they they create the rooftop as this space this artificial space that's done with i don't know what some crude green screen uh compositing uh they make that the site of the you know the romance i mean he does try to put it somewhere and make it through compositing and and but i i never felt I couldn't invest in the in the romance, and and that's hard for the story that is a romance, no matter how much uh, uh, blood and guts and uh, decapitations you put in it. But talk, I want to hear, I want to hear the defense because I'm very interested. I was grinning ear to ear during the rooftop scenes because I was like, I was stomping my feet and pumping my fist. I was like, this looks terrible. I was but, weeping. Yeah, and when. When, uh, I mean, when the vision of the, there, I mean, if you haven't seen this, most people haven't seen this film, there's a vision at one point of this rat trap with these, uh, that comes down with, that comes floating in the sky, and it's, and, uh, it's got these, like, humanoid rat midget people <laughs> trapped in it, and then there's a nude vision of, uh, of Asi Argento, and, Kind yeah, of looks like Christine. Venus yeah, that looks kind of like Venus, yeah. and it's and it and it all to me is in the kind of in the style of a very crude composite, like you'd see in Tim and Eric. And uh, uh, I was just like, "What is going on here?" Uh, but I want to hear the defense because I respect passion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what we're seeing there, it's a Paris that only exists in the imagination. It's a yeah. Paris that is distinctly cinematic. We're seeing sort of a, a crude, um, like early optical effect there. I think uh, it, it's similar to, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how the initial walking into a painting effect in Stendhal yeah. Syndrome is that sort of crude CGI, which is also something like in opera where we see the brain. Later on in the film, we do kind of just see her zoom out of a painting. And I think that's similar to some of the sort of simple optical effects that a filmmaker like Terrence Davies used to incredible, uses to incredible effects. Um, and I think what it does here is, in a way that the scenes between Julia Sands and Aja can't, really puts us in the, the Phantom's sort of like romantic headspace. I think we're seeing like a, a child's idealized sort of cinematic vision of Paris there. There's something very like innocent and quaint about it. And then... We're also sort of seeing that that bifurcated vision. Here's like both sides of this character with this uh, fantasy. Yeah, first he sees a bunch of like rat men stuck in a trap, and then he sees um, you know his love as like Venus. Um, here's the the requisite comparison to Lynch. It sort of reminds me of the end of Wild at Heart when uh, the the good fairy shows up. So I, I don't know. I think like I think a lot of filmmakers use similarly sort of consciously quaint looking effects. Um, you know, as a way of putting us in uh, sort of like an innocent headspace, as a way of sort of like disarming us and like making us watch something from an almost like childish perspective again. 
Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I would, I would honestly put this movie, I, I would mention this movie in the same conversation as a lot of films from like Lynch and Terrence Davies that use similar effects to what he does on the rooftop here. The one, one, one film actually that uses really similar effects is, uh, an Ari Romero film that no one has seen, uh, The Lady and the Duke, his, uh, French Revolution film. There are sequences, um, all of the exterior shots are like his characters walking against these like famous paintings. Um, this sort of reminded me of that. And uh, well, there and there are tons of uh, images of Paris. I mean, especially in the the kind of twenties and silent era. I mean, Paris and, and early talking era. Paris was, you know, Maurice Chevalier. Like there are lots of these images of a kind of fake Paris that were made uh, in Hollywood. Seventh Heaven, the Borzaghi film. Uh, has a beautiful, you know, backdrop of a kind of idealized uh, of Paris. The problem for me is just that the it's not so much that the effects house botched anything or that it's artificial. Is is my I can't feel the love between them, and therefore all I'm looking at is the seams, uh, you know. And then there's the issue of sort of like juxtapose. I mean, it's sort of what I love about it is that it's just batshit crazy is juxtaposing like <laughs> uh, rat people trapped in a trap against, you know, an idealized image of beauty. I mean, that's not your usual foreplay for, <laughs> you know, uh, love is that, you know, these two images right next to each other. Usually that ends the date right there when you bring out <laughs> the rat people. <laughs> and, this you know, and that's what I love is that he's just like his own sort of uh, visual and horror obsessions just kind of keep erupting out of him because that's who he is. And they're grafted on top of this love story on top of a roof with, you know, what's supposed to be, you know, the romance of uh, of the film. And I find that really interesting. Like, I mean, the thing was at the very end of the film, when they are separating uh, and she's going away in the boat and she started screaming for him, I was like shocked. I was like, wait, she doesn't want to get away from him? And then none of the other... <laughs> None of the other versions of this story, I understand completely that it's a lot. This is the only version of the story I've ever seen where I'm like, get out of there. <laughs> get out of there, lady. You, she just, you know, he had, she just saw him like fornicating, not fornicating, but like, you know, having an erotic kind of rat cuddle pile. <laughs> like it, it, it was, uh, I was sort of, uh, I. it's the only time I haven't, understood the basic emotional logic of this story can i say the only other adaptation of this story i've seen yeah. uh is the joel schumacher musical adaptation oh. from a few uh yes. a few years ago jesus mm -hmm. like from 15 years ago i'm really dating myself there uh the only gerard butler yeah it's the only other adaptation i've seen and i think they're kind of of a piece i don't know like yeah. as cheap as this movie looks i found myself thinking like god they don't make them like they used to <laughs> i don't know nothing like i would kill for for this green screen again versus like the green screen we're shooting movies against now yeah i mean the lot the lon cheney one is worth checking out uh the the claude rains ones uh i is, is, <laughs> i think it's kind of a bore yeah, but uh, the launch so is worth a As far as that juxtaposition is concerned, I would say it's of a piece with, you know, something like Stendhal Syndrome, which is about, you know, the appreciation of art ultimately being something horrific. You know, it's 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 all wrestling with that sort of yin and yang of, like, you know, mm -hmm. barbarism yeah. and death and eroticism and, and, and love. Um, and I think, you know, given where the relationship ends up, you know, with him yeah. uh, having some sort of, like, cuddle puddle with rats and then sort of, like, raping her, you know, it, it ends 
kind of horrifically. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know, it's in keeping with a guy yes. for whom these wires are crossed in a really horrific uh, graphic sort of a way. And I, I find that to be a really, yeah, I don't know, like uniquely cinematic depiction of that. Yeah. I guess I understand his wires crossed. I mean, I get like, oh, yeah, he's kind of romantic, but he cuddles with rats and he did kind of force himself on me once. Yeah, yeah, at the end. You know, I guess yeah. I don't understand her crossed wires uh, because she seems uh, like totally in love with him. And that kind of shocked me, though it hasn't in before because he's a much, uh, he's a, he's more of a romantic <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know that it does a great job of psychologizing her fixation, but I do think there are a number of scenes that depict the just sort of like toxic obsession of their relationship that are pretty effective. I think when he makes her sing is really effective. Um, on the short list of just great types of scenes, Guy wailing on an organ is like in the top mm. five. Um, mm-hmm. It just never, never fails. Um, and I think that scene's incredible here. I don't know. I think I think it's helped, too, by just the inherent ridiculousness of opera. I'm glad to hear neither of you are, like, opera fans. And I'm sorry to all the opera fans among, like, Splatoon's listenership. But I don't know. Like, it's, it's just such a great setting for this sort of thing. Because uh, there's so much, like, pomposity <laughs> and, like, routine and, and, and like, uh, like ceremony that it's, it's fun undercutting that. I love that the rooftop scene, like this, this romantic, like crazy reverie is immediately followed by that shot down the, uh, the, the main thing well, like throat, yeah. um, really like selling, like kind of what a, what a like cockeyed sort of, um, humorous take on his usual sort of, uh, slasher giallo material we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's like right out of a horror comedy. And this for me is as comedic as horror movies should get. It's certainly, I mean, the opera setting, I was just going to say, the bigness of it, you know, and the grandness of it, it does, to me, it flows with Julian Sands' performance and the, uh, and the, some of the hysteria of it, the, the, the rats, <laughs> the rats' performance, it's sort of, that all flowed fine for me. It's just when I was asked to care or understand uh, why she might care for him. That's where I, you know, I, I mean, I know that that's what the original source material, but this version didn't make that make sense to me. Yeah, it is, it is weird to have the same sort of, because, like, I, I, part of me wants to say, like, well, we don't really care about the relationship dynamics in any other Dario Argento right. film. But at the same time, there's a different set of expectations when you're adapting this classic work of literature that's, yeah, famously romantic. And No, and I would be fine going with a different version. I think he just could have gone further with it and turn it into something else, you know. Um, it's, you know, getting caught in the middle is always a, a problem. I do find it interesting that you're both talking about, you know, lacking maybe some acting nuances, but he's, he <laughs> says he approached this from a different way than he normally did. He said normally his pre-planning with his scripts and everything was so intense that he wouldn't really talk to his actors at all about what they were supposed to do because he felt it was all in the script. But during Stendhal Syndrome, he and Ozia would talk a lot about like what needed to happen in each scene. And he realized that it's kind of a good thing to talk with your actors and be collaborative with them and see what they feel they should be bringing to the scenes. So do you feel that collaborative energy came across at all? Or do you feel the <laughs> acting is the weakest portion? No, he's obviously not an actor's director, I guess. No. Um. Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> Very accurate. <laughs> I think she, I think she's quite good in Stendhal Syndrome. I've seen Trauma, Stendhal Syndrome, and this. I haven't. Their, their other film is Dracula 3D, 
Uh, Stendhal's in the movie. She's in black glasses as well. <laughs> Again. Uh, She's in dark glasses. Yeah. Uh, Briefly, so yeah. This Stendhal syndrome, I think she gives a great performance in that. Uh, she's a star like I think she's great and does everything she needs to do and it is act I mean it's uh, you know it's not um, as they say it's not Shakespeare but you know you have to believe that level of terror that level of psychological distress this sudden shift uh, I think that all works you know really well Um, you know again the the I know I don't think she's as good in this but I don't know, you know, the, a movie's a, what makes a, a scene work is uh, there are many elements. <laughs> and it's yeah. not, I don't blame the actors. You know, I don't think the solution for this working is better acting. I actually think Julian Sands is fine. He's totally creepy, you know. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's creepy. Completely, yeah. creepy. <laughs> he's totally creepy, you know. He's not, I think he's supposed to be. And his hair, he looks a little bit like a rat. He looks like he needs some conditioner. He's got long, stringy hair. Like, he's a horror Argento-y phantom. Like, I think he's fine. Um, uh, it, but it, it's when you're asking the audience to fall in love or understand why someone might fall for him, that's when it gets trickier. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think she's great in Sendhal Syndrome. I Like, honestly like thinking of it like on the short list of better horror lead performances i would say yes um this i think she's fine um yeah like, i think she's like up to the material i just think like I, it's tough when like half of your performance is dubbed it's half although i guess like yes know, she's used to being dubbed being in italian movies but it's tough when you're like singing dubbed I, there's a there's a way of like carrying yourself uh, like just not that i know from opera performers but like uh, it's it's clear that she's not like singing there's a very like I'm not like putting mm-hmm. my like chest into this to like the singing that like, I don't know, it like, mm-hmm. takes you out of it, it, It's de immersive, um, mm-hmm. which I think like hurts the film a little bit, but a, a fine performance. Um, I, I don't think she like derails the film or anything. And I'm with you that like, I don't know that like better acting would sell people who are not in on this yeah. film on this film. I think as with every film I've ever picked for split picks, you know, 10 minutes into this, uh, if it's for you or not. Yeah. Yes. You do find those ones better. Yeah. <laughs> You're good at that. <laughs> it's not boring, I'll say, and it moves along. I mean, No, and not... he has films, good films that are boring. And this he has never good boring. films that are boring, and they're not yeah, long expositional true. passages like he's kind of known for. So it, it has that. Frankly, this is one of the few films of his that I think could use an extra 10 minutes. Mm. I, I would have watched another one. We're not going to get a second <laughs> yeah, right. on that. We can, all, we can agree to disagree because I think that second. <laughs> well, I will say it too. could use some development if the goal is to make me fall in love. Yeah. It could use some development. So I did like this. Argento, his film immersion, I guess would be a good word, began when he was a film critic. Um, he was writing for an Italian paper and reflecting on that era he said you know for me bad films didn't exist every film had something to be savored about it even if only five minutes or a frame or a soundtrack i mean pretty much anything you read about this film is that people will say it's a bad film i mean bennett you've given a few reasons why you think it's great but i'm just curious what you think is your what's your favorite moment from this film is it the rooftop rooftop. yeah for sure yeah (laughs) does anything come close to that for you Oh, when he bites out her tongue, that's crazy. He's um, that's, he's that's, a biter in this. That's up there with uh, any of like the better kills in Argento's filmography. I think. I think him like hammering down the chandelier 
is an incredible sequence. Um, and then, like mm-hmm. I said before, him like making her sing while he plays the organ is like an incredible depiction of this like toxic, like obsessive relationship the two of them have. And I think is the closest the movie comes to really selling it. I do think, yeah, her 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 desire to return to him at the end doesn't quite read. I think one more scene like that scene at the organ really would maybe uh, sell you on that. Um, I mean, I would definitely one hundred percent go with Rat Vacuum uh, oh, for yeah. my favorite I don't think scene. Any Hundred, uh, no question. I mean, when they started building that thing, I was like, no. No, and then when I saw it in action, I was—I just had a grin on my face. From I was just like rat vacuum. He's—he broke down the the big ceiling, the <laughs> the glass ceiling for uh, for rat. Uh, what do you call that? A, I have no idea. Rat, rat vacuum killing machines. I I love what is to the, yes. Yeah. That sequence ends too so perfectly. It's like he there's this sequence. It, it very briefly is like a sequence out of another movie. This sort of like goofy slapstick comedy of them like vacuuming rats and like suctioning them up into the guy's hand, and then they crash, and the one guy gets decapitated by a blade. It's, it's just very immediately like you're and right back done. in like giallo territory. Yeah, I think some scene. of the kills in this are so goofy. Um, very early on, I think like like forty minutes in, you find out that like the first scenes were a year ago and. I've watched it three times. I don't think there's anything to suggest the passage of time. Perfect. That to me is like the apotheosis of this sort of dreamlike, you're waking up and it's like later and you're in a new place quality of his films. Like that to me is like picking up the ball that he put down when Asha wakes up in the car in Stendhal Syndrome. Like this is him taking a lot of his like fixations, the things that he does and the things that are both frustrating and incredible about his filmmaking and just, you know, playing them at, at, at full volume. Um, folks, check out Phantom of the Opera. Uh, it's it's not streaming anywhere. I don't think. Actually, it might be on Tubi. Now that I say that, it's on no. Tubi. Is it no. not? No, it's not. Oh. It's not streaming anywhere. Yeah, uh, I'll send you the MKV, everybody. Uh, don't <laughs> tell me it's impossible to find. I do think you can. Yeah, you have to buy a. I think you have to buy a imported uh, DVD. Worth every penny. It's, uh, to, it's tough. Yeah, folks, I'll send penny. you a quote unquote imported DVD. <laughs> <laughs> that's not gonna last long <laughs> i i was thinking during watching this that because there are a lot of highlights but you sort of see his obsessions grafted onto a story that it doesn't quite uh, fit that's with that's yeah. what i would say and so and i agree i mean i loved the tongue coming out loved all anything with a rat i thought was terrific but you know as i was going down the you know there's kind of a lot of there are a lot of scenes where you're kind of going down the the, the trip down to his underworld lair and a spider will go by or a bat will go by and you start to go, God, he's really leaning into his bats and animals and spiders and worms and there's something a little like you've got all the trappings of your interests and the ways you make a squirm, but you, it, they're not, they're, they're feeling a little naked out there you know compared to you know the use of insects and like something like phenomena but isn't that what late style is all about you know yeah you, you might as well yes. be describing yes. a film like cry macho as far as i'm concerned <laughs> yes yes <laughs> yes not that bad cry Great macho film, as far as I'm I was not saying. his best not yeah. that bad though modest i would say <laughs> so i've got two questions left for you guys so to follow up on argento's quote about having redeeming moments negating a film being bad do you believe bad films do exist, even if they bring you some semblance of joy? Oh, I mean, I, I 
I will. I share his optimistic view. I mean, that is the way I look at movies. I don't look at it like one strike and you're out. Mm -hmm. I look at it as what can I get out of this movie? What pleasure might it have? And what what idea about cinema might it have? You know, what new inventive thing might it have? Uh, and then I look at it's all it's a bonus if the whole thing adds up. Um, but I watch a lot of movie very, I mean, we all watch imperfect movies, but I think real movie nuts, you know, you, you love it so much. You're kind of interested in the, the, the things that aren't so successful, uh, uh, you know, either. I mean, I, I spent last week, uh, watching movies about pilots because, you know, and watched all the airport films and then one one film by uh, Cliff Robertson about an alcoholic pilot and, and then Flight and uh, then Sully. And like, I mean, these were some, I mean, Flight and Sully are all right, but these other ones were like, you know, those that airport series is like, <laughs> you know, I mean, a real bottom of the barrel filmmaking. But, you know, you get one good suspense sequence or, you know, uh, one little treasure you can pull out of it or one idea of how to do a good plane crash or how to film something. And I'm, you know, I'm pleased as, uh, pleased as punch. Uh, so I, I share that, uh, that philosophy about going to the movies. I hope when the, you know, when the lights go down and the movie comes up, I'm rooting for it, you know, and I'll, I'll give it points when it does something interesting. Yeah. Okay. Bennett. Yeah, I'm generally, I think I know your answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm generally of the same mind, you know, that there's there's really no such thing as a bad movie. I mean, for me, as long as a movie is directed, as long as there is like a point of view behind it, and as long as you're, in addition to getting a movie, getting um, something of a self-portrait of the person who directed it, then it is worthwhile. I think we have now a lot of movies that are very nakedly directed by committee. Um, I think those don't have a lot to recommend them. I think those are bad in terms of um, like what they portend for this uh, this medium we all love so much. At the same time, like I'm not made of stone, you know. Like I've, I've given plenty of like you know two star ratings, which for me uh, reflects some level of affection to to Marvel movies. You know, it's occasionally you know there's some merit to just seeing like Spider Man swing around or whatever. So yeah, I mean, well, I think there are movies that like have a deleterious effect um i don't really think there's such a thing as a bad movie <laughs> and that, i mean there's like ineffective movies right <laughs> there's movies that don't do what they set out to do or movies that like aren't entertain entertaining or whatever but yeah as long as there's a directorial intent behind it there's something uh, in of interest to me if it has something of interest and something that works it's not a bad movie it's not an entirely bad movie if it's a movie that's trying to deceive like a pretentious movie, I think sometimes that can be a bad movie. <laughs> because I think the one thing you're trying to do, right, is communicate with your audience. If you're trying to appear profound, uh, I think this is deceitful, and uh, uh, I might categorize that as a, a bad movie. Oh, yeah, I think a lot of movies... Or that something that is trying to hurt hurt the audience. <laughs> you know, something that's trying to punish the audience or... Uh, in a way that is uh, of no value to the audience. I'm not just talking about taking them through a painful experience. I might put that in bad, but um, you, those to me are worse than just an inept movie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I recently watched this movie. You, it's kind of a has a little bit of a reputation, the 
the deathbed. Oh yeah, wonderful uh, movie. The bed oh, that eats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a, a pretty crudely made uh, film uh, by a one and done director. Uh, you know, who kind of cobbled it together with some money after college. Uh, but the thing has like three good ideas in it. <laughs> it wasn't that long, and and it has a kind of camp enjoyment to it. I would not. I you know I'm glad I saw. Yeah, it. sustains a mood. Has some indelible images. I mean, I, I hate to yeah. I hate to trot out the, the infamous like Howard Hawks quote, but like what would a good movie is what like three a good scenes, good no scenes. bad ones. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know something like Deathbed certainly fits that bill. I think. So I just want to run through what he made after this not in depth but so after this he made sleepless good the card player haven't seen it mother of tears good and giallo haven't seen it dracula <laughs> dracula 3d and most recently dark glasses he gets um, a pretty bad reputation for late period movies i think in all of these there are moments to love he will always have something in it but I do think a lot of these are not good films. So I think I disagree with Argento in the sense that there is no bad films. Like, I think there are bad films with good moments. That's my personal take. But what do you just briefly make of late Argento? Like, his most recent films? Well, I, I'll i start and just say, I have not seen Dark Glasses or Giallo. I've seen Mother of Tears. Uh, being a fan of that series i was you know i would say it has some good scenes in it i did not love it it has interesting stuff if you're interested in his like i don't know his family drama it's got his like ex-wife you know (laughs) as a like supernatural apparition (laughs) kind of coming in and guiding their daughter uh who's in it i mean it has stuff that's interesting like that but it was to me such it felt like such a different universe from the the first two films i you know i was disappointed it felt like a uh, somebody really who had fallen down a notch in their ability whether it's money or what what uh it's very hard to make movies when you're older you know um there were some interesting things in it and interesting scenes in it uh but again i haven't seen everything sleepless uh i have seen and i i i think that's that has a one of the it has a scare in it just of a like a killer like hunched over in his bed whispering i've killed so many people <laughs> and it it frightened me so much hearing that and the and it's not just that scene but the whole build up towards that scene and you know he's he's got some stuff that's firing on all cylinders in that film so uh and you know i will eventually get around to seeing these others he's becoming less of a you know, I think because of his rep- sinking reputation, they're not getting theatrical distribution here. You know, it's getting a little harder to track them down, as we saw with, you know, you can't even get Phantom Phantom. of the Opera on streaming. I mean, we're kind of used to being able to get anything. I was like, what? Phantom of the Opera? I can't get it? Yeah, <laughs> I think it I just know. got a Blu-ray release in June. I think he's maybe yeah. coming back around to uh, getting a little bit more back in the spotlight. and Maybe a reappraisal of the the newer films is in order. What with the uh, the Film Society of Lincoln Center doing that full Lincoln retrospective, Center, yeah. um, you know, releases like that Blu-ray release of Phantom of the Opera, um, at least I hope so, because um, for me, I think a lot of these these newer films, um, they're not the intro that I would recommend for anybody, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you exhaust the, like, 10 or so Undisputed Classics, uh, you really, 
will find a lot to enjoy, at least in my opinion, in some of these other ones. I like Do You Like Hitchcock, with no, which nobody likes. Um, I was never <laughs> seen that. It's full of these like very like uh, overt like recreations of like sequences from Hitchcock films, like more shameless than like anything De Palma ever would have like imagined, mm-hmm. like De Palma first drafts. Um, but uh, I don't know. I found it very entertaining. I watched a documentary on Jello films last night, and one of the guys in it just said, I mean, if you think about it, Argento is essentially Paul McCartney. He made Suspiria. What else does he have to do? <laughs> you know, It's like he mm-hmm. does kind of have that just like, well, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. he's basically a beetle in Italian cinema. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I do think he's untouchable in so many ways that you do have to lend him some slack. So should we make a pick? I mean, I, I am curious to see which one you're both going to take. Stendhal Syndrome versus Fan of the Opera. Steve, you want to go first? Oh, I would take Stendhal Syndrome. Okay. By a landslide, or is it a competitive? By a landslide. <laughs> <laughs> Bennett, I uh, well, know where you're going. <laughs> I'm going to take Fan of the Opera, but it's close. Okay. Um, like Good. I said, Stendhal Syndrome is uh, definitely uh, top 10 Argento for me. And that top 10 is way more interchangeable, I think, for me than for a lot of people. Um, and I'll say Stendhal Syndrome, I'm so glad you picked this one. This is one that I would yeah, not so. have otherwise been like rushing to watch. Um, an esoteric choice that really uh, rewards uh, fans of Argento. I saw some, there's some list online where they rank all of his films, and this they ranked last, which I thought was pretty wild. Uh, I Stendhal like Syndrome? It, yeah, I feel like if you like or him Phantom. at all. Or uh, Phantom. Uh, Stendhal Syndrome. I feel like if you like oh. him at all, like Stendhal Syndrome's got to sit somewhere in the middle, right? <laughs> like, it has so many of the hits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I do. It may be the just the brutality yeah. of it. I mean, it it I and it's you know that's a personal thing. If that may just override what you're willing to watch, and you just put it, you know. And I've had that reaction to some movies in my life. Uh, you know, I just um, there's also so much interesting in this film that I and I didn't. I, I when I do feel like something's really exploitative, I I just didn't feel that in in this thing and that's what really turns me against a film if i i feel like uh you know uh there's there's real exploitation happening i just didn't feel that yeah i i agree with you steve i'm i'm taking stendhal syndrome i i just watching it again i was so impressed by how they do approach this just brutal (laughs) material because it is handled very well once you're able to get get past some of the more uncomfortable aspects but i think that pretty much wraps it up for today thank you both for joining us this has been a lot of fun i learned way more than i was expecting to so this is awesome (laughs) it's what it's all about great well great (laughs) me too me too and i'm actually probably going to I'm going to finish off. I'm going to watch Jalo. I have a copy of Jalo. I think I might watch it tonight, yeah. I think I might watch Jalo tonight. I still got to see Sleepless. I'll do that first. But... <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. probably better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, we've got more. We're going to look at a few other Italian greats this month. There's a ton of great stuff going up on October Horror right now. Thank you for listening. Steve Bennett, thank you for joining us. 